Welcome to the Denver United Church Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Rob Brendel. All right, good morning. Doesn't that make you want to watch like a 1960s Sean Connery, James Bond movie? It's so great. Hey, here we are at the end of February, the beginning of March, and um, it's worth noting, of course, every year, the significance of February includes that it is Black History Month in America, and a time that in particular, we in our country turn our attention to uh, the many contributions of culture and, and science and advancement um, made uh, through the African-American community, and none, of course, is more significant among those than the civil rights movement. I was doing some reading uh, this month. Uh, there's a variety of articles and, um, and podcasts and things like that that focus on that subject at this time of year uh, on the civil rights movement, and I learned something that I didn't know, or at least that I didn't understand the significance of until now, and that is that the civil rights movement as we know it, and the, the vast breakthroughs, the, the revolution in our culture, and the writing of a ship uh, of injustice that had been very wrong and hypocritical for too long in our nation, th- that was accomplished not from um, like war rooms or boardrooms, but living rooms all across the deep south where people gathered organically and learned how to practice nonviolent protest. And the reason that that required a learning and practice is that we don't love right away like that. You don't learn in a conference or seminar over a weekend and then get certified in nonviolent protest. The kind of love that stands in the face of a a fire hose or an attack dog and does not fight back under any circumstances, all the more under circumstances of such historic injustice uh, and, and righteous indignation and anger that it would produce. You don't do that because you signed on to a protest. That kind of love is grown little by little, bit by bit, organically. And that happened in a quiet movement that was was not political but social. People would meet in living rooms and talk about these ideas and Young men and women who were fired up to see change and willing to sacrifice to affect it in our country came in ready to protest and learned a way of protest that went on to change the world. Now we learn hate, we learn anger pretty quickly because we're all born as broken and sinful people and those things get installed pretty quickly because we flow with that current. But love is a counterculture. And nonviolent protest is an expression of love that takes learning. And it takes learning in the context of community over time. And those heroes of the civil rights era under the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., they, they changed America and the world. Not by legislation, not at first, not by litigation, but by... A, Little sandwiches and punch. Our title this morning is Assault with a Deadly Potluck. And I'll explain that in a minute. We're in a series called Disruptors. 
returning to the book of Acts as we study through it over the course of a couple of years, zeroing in this month on Paul's second missionary journey. The first saw him take the gospel inland in southern Asia and Eurasia. And then here in the second missionary journey, he, backed, he retraces those steps, but then leaps the pond and goes to Europe. This is when Western civilization, and we, as we know it, saw its origins. The Judeo-Christian culture that has underpinned the global West started now in AD 30-something, when Paul went to Europe and brought the gospel with him. Landmark event in history captured here in Acts chapter 17. This is where we get the verse that is our theme for this series. The civic leaders in this city where he goes, they are thrown into turmoil and they exclaim, these people who have been turning the world upside down, they've now come here too. These are the disruptors. These are the ones who confronted and changed the world order in the first century, established the kingdom of God as it advanced. You and I are the disruptors in this post-Christian civilization. And we've got a lot to learn from them. We're in Acts chapter 17 this morning, starting in verse 1. Uh, I thought maybe we would just vary the pitch. And rather than me reading the word, you know, the word, the word of God says, faith comes by hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing the word of God. And sometimes hearing it from different people and different voices and in different ways keeps it fresh and from becoming routine. So uh, Ephraim, I asked you, if, uh, Ephraim, if he'd read the word for us. Would you mind reading it? Daniel's got the mic here. Uh, it'll be up on the screen. So read along if you like, or just Close your eyes and listen to the word of God. There's a couple of cities, by the way, um, that, that I didn't give you fair warning. So just like, am, what is it? Amphipolis and Ap Apollonia. It's my best guess. Anyway, let's listen to the word of God. All right. In Spanish? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Paul and Silas then traveled through the towns of Amphi. Sorry, again. Which one? I don't know. Anthropolis, Your guess is as good as mine. Apollonia, <laughs> and came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service, and for three Sabbaths in a row, he used the scriptures to reason with the people. He explained the prophecies and proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. He said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. Some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. But some of the Jews were jealous, so they gathered some troublemakers from the marketplace to form a mob and start a riot. They attacked the home of Jason, searching for Paul and Silas so they could drag them out of the crowd, out to the crowd. Not finding them there, they dragged out Jason and some of the other believers instead and took them before the city council. Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world, they shouted, and now they are here disturbing our city too. And Jason has welcomed them into his home. They are all guilty of treason against Caesar, for they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus. The people of the city, as well as the city council, were thrown into turmoil by these reports. So the officials forced Jason and the other believers to post bond. And then they released them. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ephraim. You know, the power is in the word of God. Always has been. It's not in my words or anyone else's words. If they're trying to tell you that their words have power, they're selling you something. Only the word of God does. And insofar as we 
illuminate the word of God, let it stick. If it doesn't, if it distracts, let it fall. But the word of God is eternal. And that's where the power to change and grow as the people of God comes from. So may we always give it reverence. In verse four, it teaches that some of the Jews were persuaded. What's happening here? As Pastor George talked to us about last week, it became Paul's starting way to go to the Jewish synagogue. There was a diaspora, a dispersion of Jewish people because of Roman persecution around and outside the, uh, the region of Palestine and into the Roman world. So there was an enclave of Jews there. He went to their synagogue and many of them opposed him as was often the case. Some of them received the message. People seeking God from the starting point of Judaism received the gospel. They were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. But some, it seems, were jealous, so they attacked the home of Jason. Now, what's going on here? we see the beginnings of the first churches in the world starting to form. And this was, a, this was a disparate array, an eclectic gathering of believers, diverse and I would say odd bedfellows. You know, you've got Jewish people and Greeks or Gentile people and the Jewish people back home anyway, they don't mix. They were downright racist. They didn't have anything to do with non-Jewish people. And they looked down on them. And then on top of that, you have in most first century civilizations, a culture of, of misogyny where m- men didn't mix with women and women weren't expected to participate in society. They were expected to be quiet and they were marginalized or diminished entirely. And so you've got not only Jews and Greeks, but you've got men and some prominent women in this cosmopolitan progressive city of Thessalonica, you've got women who, who are leading in their industries, and we'll meet one of them in a couple of weeks, and they're there. And so these people are figuring out how to live across the lines that divide society in their generation, and they're doing it around Jesus. So what's going on here? As a quick zoom out and to place it in historical context, Paul and Silas and Timothy They formed a church in this non-Christian nation and they put it right in the heart of the city. They met in Jason's house. And that would seem self-evident and unimportant as just a textual note if it weren't so countercultural, right? Then as now, splinter groups, religious sects, cults, offshoot movements, as undoubtedly this Christian church would have seemed at the at the time, they famously go out from the city, right? Where they can get left alone, where they can do their thing. And there's not a million city regulations telling them they can't. Like they didn't put their fledgling church in the foothills surrounded by a wall or in a compound out on the eastern plains where they stockpile, stockpile fertilizer and, you know, Russian weapons made in the 70s and form a militia. They put it right in the heart of the city in Jason's house. And I think they did it on purpose. This is a church for the city of Thessalonica, for their people, and it looked like the city of Thessalonica. And it gathered in the heart of Thessalonica and faced all the challenges that came with that. First Thessalonians chapter one gives us a sideways glance 
into what's happening in this historical account. It's been our way in studying through this portion of Acts in this series to look as a supporting text at the corresponding epistle, right? So Paul plants a church in Thessalonica and then later on writes a letter back to that church. We call it 1 Thessalonians. In chapter 1, it says this letter is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy, We are writing to the church in Thessalonica to you who belong to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So these are genuine believers. This isn't a seekers meeting any longer. They've given their lives to Jesus. They've come together from across the societal divides. And he says, may God give you grace and peace. We know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you and has chosen you to be his own people. When I've read these epistles over the years and it says to the church in Thessalonica, I think I've imagined church in my own image, right? I pastored as a young associate in a really large church that, as I've told you, was like a small town on the north side of Colorado Springs. And so I pictured Paul writing a letter to a mega church, you know, in a huge auditorium. But Paul was writing to a a group of recently non-strangers, a diverse and strange array of characters meeting in Jason's house. The great Dallas Willard in Renovation of the Heart put it this way, Jesus did not send his students out to start governments or even churches as we know them today. They were instead to establish, listen, beachheads of his person, his word, and his power in the midst of a failing and futile humanity. That's what they were doing. They were establishing a beachhead of the person of Jesus. Here's collectively in our approximation as new and rough around the edges followers of Jesus. Here's what Jesus' person is like. His power and his word. Right in the midst of this fragile, futile humanity. In verse 5, our primary text continues, they attacked the home of Jason and took them before the city council. Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world, they shouted, and now they're here disturbing our city too, and Jason's welcomed them into his home. I find this sort of curious, even a little funny, that in response to their reputation, They go track down where Paul is staying and they find a group of new Christians hanging out in Jason's house. And so swept away with this this uproar that they're feeling, they drag these new Christians, this small church, it's kind of like a small group meeting in this guy's house and, and this disparate array of characters, they drag him out of the house and in front of the city council and they charge him with... What exactly? Like gathering for a social on Friday night? For getting together and fellowshipping over small sandwiches and punch? Like what are the charges? Like assault with a deadly potluck? See, I told you it'd come back. You're like, what is that? How exactly were Jason and his friends 
disturbing the city? What were they doing that was so disruptive? That's the thing, right? This is happening in Thessalonica and it's happening in Philippi and then it's happening in Athens and Corinth later. It's starting to happen all over the world. Jesus' followers are disrupting the world's order over heavy appetizers. Like meeting with Swedish meatballs and cocktail weenies and turning the world upside down. What's so disruptive about that? Kind of begs the question, right? They were gathering around Jesus. They were learning to live in authentic community. They were learning how to love. They were doing what the reformers, the revolutionaries of the American civil rights movement were doing in the early 60s, gathering in living rooms over little finger sandwiches and punch. They were learning slowly how to love. They were learning by practicing loving one another. They were white people as well as black people and all kinds of other people. They were figuring out what it means to be authentic Americans. They were learning how to love such that they could take it to the streets and stand in the face of an attack dog and a fire hose and not give in to hate. That kind of love is slowly learned. It's learned in community. It's practiced in living rooms. And that, I would suggest, is exactly what the believers were doing here. And it was disruptive. They were meeting in a home, sharing meals and learning to live like family. Look in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes, as apostles of Christ, we certainly had the right to make some demands of you. Like, I know that you guys are new to this Christianity thing, but it's not new, and there's some established ground rules, and here's how it goes. We're, as apostles, you might not know this, but a little bit of a, a big deal. And so what we need you to do is know that we can't mix with the commoners you need to make a green room. Why is it green? No idea. And it needs to have shrimp cocktail. And then we'll come out in time to minister the word and go back because we need to guard the anointing, you know. It somehow dwindles or gets com compromised if we have to hang with the commoners. He said, it's not like that. Remember, it wasn't like that. We could have made demands on you as apostles. But instead, we were like children among you. Like children are like, like a, we were like a mother feeding and caring for her children. And at this point, he's using the word we, and that means him and Silas and Timothy. And I think Silas and Timothy were like, yeah, yeah. Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. That's a little, we, I, I, he was like, he might have been like a mother. I was more like a, I was more like a brother or like an, maybe like a cousin or uncle. I don't know if I, Paul's groping for metaphors and his mind goes to family. He wasn't like a CEO among them. He wasn't like a visiting head of state. He said it was like a mom nurturing you, nursing you, caring for you. And while Timothy and Silas were learning on the fly and a little weirded out by that, listen to what he says. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our lives 
as well. Yes, we taught you. Yes, we shared the word, but we did it in the context of sharing our lives. We did it in the context of family. We did it in the context of love. That's the way that this thing got started. Sharing life, learning to live as brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. This is at the heart of Jesus' way. And in chapter three, Paul adds, finally, we couldn't stand it any longer. We decided to stay alone in Athens and sent Timothy to you. So you know from this that this is likely very soon after the events that we're reading in Acts 17 because they go on to Athens among their next stops. George shared about that last week. And he said, we were missing you even though we couldn't be there with you. We would like to have been. We were feeling at home with you. We'd like to have been part of the church, but our job as apostles is to be missionaries and go to the next place. But man, this isn't a job for us. And we were missing you. So we sent Timothy to check on you. He's our brother and co-worker. And now Timothy is just returned, verse six, bringing us good news about your faith and love. He reports that you always remember our visit with joy and that you want to see us as much as we want to see you. This doesn't read like a, a, a church polity letter or like a theological statement. This reads more like the text my mom sent me last week after I flew back from visiting my elderly folks. She said, you know, we miss you already and it was such a joy to have you and even though you've got a family and a congregation and we respect that, you'll always be our little boy and we love you. It, it kind of feels like that. This is family. That's what was going on there in Thessalonica. And what we see in this text is that this kind of living is countercultural. It's offensive, even. It's downright disruptive. It causes folks to stand up and take notice. Remember after giving my life to Jesus in earnest my freshman year in college, I experienced a little window of kind of like heaven on earth, a little time of just the sweetness of God's presence in a particular way that when you walk with Jesus for a while, once in a while you, you recognize that you've experienced it. You, don't, you can't fabricate it and then sometimes you just are sad when it's gone. But my sophomore year, some believers who were older brothers in the Lord in our um, Christian fellowship group invited me and a friend to live in their dorm. And so we had this little pocket of Christians in the midst of a very non-Christian setting. And we'd get together in the evenings. It started organically and then it became a, a regular thing. Five nights a week, we were meeting halfway through first semester. At 11 o'clock at night, Sunday night through Thursday night, we would meet and it was ostensibly a prayer meeting, but we spent half the time like, you know, encouraging one another, doing the back rub circle. You know, boundaries were a little murkier in those years. We stayed up later than we should have, but somebody would be going through a hard time and we'd pray for them. Somebody would have had a funny story and we'd all laugh together. Somebody started bringing an acoustic guitar and strumming it and we like got down to Lord, I lift your name on high. You remember that? I was like, that was the real stuff. Some of you are like, Lord, I lift your name on, what was that? You don't know anything about worship. It's Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I love, you came from heaven to earth. You remember the motions? To show, I mean, we did the motions. 
It was real. From the earth to the cross, my dead. You got to break the chains to pay. Yeah. You remember it? It's good stuff. Like the Holy Ghost is falling with some of you. I can see it. And, and these were sweet times. But you know what? They caused, they started causing angst among our dorm mates. Like, why? I mean, our music wasn't louder or more disruptive than the loud music coming out of their room. The sweet aroma of fellowship wasn't as, as noxious as the aroma of marijuana coming out of the room next door. What was so disruptive about us sitting together doing the back rub circle and singing a song with an acoustic guitar? It somehow showed up the, the limitation, the inadequacy of the flimsy system by which they were trying to live, that they had signed on and said, this is the good way. And what they saw in us in spite of themselves was a yet more excellent way and it bugged them. So they would pop their heads in and make fun of us and be like, hey, is Jesus coming tonight? And you know, things like that. And you guys want us to bring you a bong and stuff like that. And we're like, yeah, whatever. We laughed. But what was so agitating about that? What caused so much angst? Look at verse seven in our primary text this morning. Jason, they said, has welcomed them into his home. And they're like, what, what? you brought him into the city council in the middle of the night. Well, he welcomed them into his home and, and the, they're all guilty of treason. Yeah, that's it. Treason against Caesar. I mean, that line of reasoning didn't even work with Jesus. I mean, yeah, they ended up killing him anyway, but Pontius Pilate was like, I find no basis for charges. This is ridiculous. What are you people talking about? But he's guilty of treason. They're treason against Caesar because they profess allegiance to another king, this uh, Jesus. And the people of the city, as well as the city council, listen, they were thrown into turmoil by these reports. Which reports? These sinister reports of potlucks at Jason's house. Like what was so disruptive? What was so tumultuous? What was causing them so much agitation? They were getting together and having cocktail weenies and maybe like doing a potluck and like maybe somebody brought it, like it was, a, I don't know, I was peeking through the window and it was like some kind of tuna dish. I think they called it tuna surprise. And so potlucks began. Evidence of the fall of man, right? And I, I mean, I got to respect, I get that. If that was the thing, I, I think that's worthy of some recrimination because that's just wrong on many levels. You shouldn't bring tuna anything, but especially tuna things that don't have a name and are called tuna surprise, you should never bring those to potlucks, ever. So I get that, but other than that, what else is offensive about a potluck? What were they doing? What were the reports of what was going on at Jason's house? They got an acoustic guitar and they're singing this song. I think it's, Lord, I lift your name on high. And their allegiance to this Jesus fellow, it's, it's really troubling. And they're like, what's troubling? No, no, it's really troubling. What was the big deal? Why does living together in allegiance to Jesus incite so much turmoil? That's the question this passage begs. What makes Christian community so disruptive? Well, as he so often does, Jesus answers that question. In like a sentence and a half in John 13, he's getting ready to go to the cross and he tells his disciples, I'm only going to be with you a little longer. And where I'm going, you can't go. So I give you a new commandment. Love one another. Because by your love for one another, the world will know you're my disciples. 
They don't, they're not going to know you're my disciples by your doctrinal purity or even by your religious works. Not primarily by the way you love them because there's something deeply wired into their culture programming that says, what's the catch? Nobody loves like that. What do you want from me? But the way you love, listen, the way you love one another, that's the tell. That's the thing that's going to show them what I'm like. It's a beachhead of my person, my word and my power, like Dallas Willard wrote. And by this, they're going to know you're my disciples. It's the love that's so disruptive, isn't it? It's the love that beguiled those enforcers of the unjust law. Those evil politicians that wanted to continue to repress citizens of our country into the 20th century in spite of our governing documents. It was the love. That's what caused them so much turmoil. Like, what was so offensive they had to kill a man? People standing there and allowing themselves to get mauled by attack dogs and sprayed with fire hoses? What's so hard about that? Love always has been disruptive, hasn't it? And it was the love that turned the world upside down. Christ's love in us challenges norms, deeply entrenched cultural norms of veiled self-worship and millimeter-thick, flimsy tolerance. We've talked a lot about how being Denver United means living with Jesus, living in family and living on mission? Well, I think what this passage shows us is that living in family is a mission all its own. Do you hear it? Living in family is a mission all its own. The great early 20th century English novelist and culture commentator Dorothy Sayers observed this. It was true then in London. It's true now in Denver. The value that rules our culture calls itself tolerance. How ominous and foreshadowing is this? She wrote this in like the 1920s. Calls itself tolerance, but in hell, it is called despair. Because it is the sin which believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and only remains alive because there is nothing it would die for. And see, the love of Jesus lived out in living rooms across a city, across the deep south. The love of Jesus that surrenders all for someone that believes something so strongly that it gives its life for some others and says, for these things, I would willingly die. That shows up a culture that holds up a veneer of tolerance and says, nothing's wrong, but there's really nothing that's right. 
that spends a life climbing a ladder to get to the top and realize the wall it's leaning on goes nowhere. And so it does the only thing it knows how to do. It hates and releases attack dogs. What they did to Jason and those prominent women and those couple of Jews, it's exactly what they did to those revolutionaries in the 1960s. Hosed them down and sick their dogs on them and clenched their jaws when they didn't fight back. It's always been the love, hasn't it? Living in family in front of the watching world, woven right into the midst of the city, shows them what Jesus is like. It shows them the yet more excellent way. Romans 8 says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Doesn't know that's what it's waiting for, but something in it was programmed for love. And even if it doesn't know what to call it, it knows that it's made for something more. Now, creation may not be waiting so eagerly for the revealing of a bunch of religious political pundits to tell them which party Jesus really believes in. And they may not be waiting for religious pontificators, all ponderous about their ideals. And they may not be waiting for self-appointed enforcers of moral law, but they're waiting for daughters and sons. They're waiting to see what family looks like. They're waiting to know that they're not alone and that their life matters and that they were made for something more than productivity. They're waiting for love. They're waiting for God's children to be revealed as daughters and sons and mothers and cousins. They're waiting for the disparate expressions of this city that are taught from birth to live on one side or the other of some sociological divide, fearing and looking down on the richer or the poorer or the whiter or the browner or the older or the younger or the Republican or the Democrat or the cooler or the less cool. They're waiting to be told, to be shown that there is a more excellent way. They had to kill Dr. King for the world to wake up and see that there is a yet more excellent way and follow the way of love. And a lot of these first century Christians, they killed them too. They just couldn't take it. But little by little and bit by bit, their disruptive influence in cities across Europe and Asia turned the world upside down. And we're here because of them today. Timothy Keller built an influential church in the heart of Manhattan and observed this, God calls Christians to stay in the city and to identify with the city. Weave yourselves into the city in a way that weaves wholeness and health into the city. 
so I think this passage asks us a couple of simple things. One is to embrace the sacrifice of life together. And it is a sacrifice, isn't it? To give up some of my personal autonomy for the other. To bear with the other. What if I'm feeling good and they're down? All those bad vibes I got to live with. Not for no reason does the scripture teach submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because when we submit to one another, we're really submitting to Jesus. Embrace that sacrifice. All over this city, all through the week, little embassies of Jesus are woven into the heart of our city. There's a group of young professionals that meets on Cap Hill and they live counterculturally to the way that the young professionals on Cap Hill live, getting themselves all fixed up on Saturday night to go out and hope someone will go home with them so that they'll feel valuable for one more week. And living in authentic mutual love, it exposes that for the flimsy, tawdry, hopeless solution that it is. And they're shining Jesus. There's a group of businessmen in our congregation. They come from all over and probably mostly from the suburbs, but they gather in the morning, in the heart of the tech center, where the, the nexus of wealth and influence in Colorado collides. And they meet in a glass-walled conference room before the start of the workday. And they talk about the scriptures and they pray for one another and they build each other up in the Lord. And I went to that group a few times and I was amazed that people would show up to work and they'd come by, see us sitting there. We weren't even singing, Lord, I lift your name on high. There was nothing remotely disruptive. But they'd open the door and pop their heads into you guys who go to that group. You remember this? And they'd be like, you guys actually believe this effing stuff? It was disruptive. It challenged the norm and called it out for flimsy. And it drew many of them to Jesus. And what about these students that go to school in the heart of post-Christian secular humanism? The Colorado School of Mines and the University of Denver each week. You guys don't need me to preach this message to you. You're living it, aren't you, Christian? You know what I'm talking about because you guys gather, you enjoy fellowship, you encourage one another along, and they look at you like you've got two heads, but they're being drawn to Jesus in you. All over this city, And it asks us to bless the city. Wherever God's put you, if you're in Golden, if you're in Greenwood Village, or if you're in Cap Hill, bless the city because to be Denver United means that we are missionaries. Maybe we're residents, missionaries and residents. Maybe we're translocal. We're like commuter missionaries. But to be here now, we can't turn a blind eye to the convergence of influence and opportunity of affluence and responsibility that is chiefly in our city. You're missionaries, did you know? And by your love for one another, woven into the heart of this city, the world will know 
that we're Jesus followers and they'll know what Jesus looks like and they'll know the hope for which they were created. Amen? Time to go. Would you stand with me? Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for my friends. Thank you for this family of believers who authentically believe, who embrace this countercultural invitation to gather across the divisions for unity. Lord, would you give us grace to submit to one another, to live lives of love, and in our love for one another, woven into the heart of this city, to live on mission. Lord, would you give us grace to represent you well, to contend for unity, to hold out for authentic love. Let us show this world what you look like and how valuable they are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you all. We hope you've been encouraged this week. For more information or to submit a prayer request, go to denverunited.com. 